Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello and welcome to Friday, this show where we interview friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great music. Um, today we are joined by Corey Brettschneider, uh, who has written the book The Oath and the Office. Hello, Corey. How are you, Geese? I'm terrific. Thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Great deal. I got this big book sent to the post okay. from your people. Um, it's a weighty tome. Um, how do you go about putting together such a book and then... Here's a provocative question for you. Do you sure. need another book about the office of the presidency? I guess the history of the book might, might answer the deeper question as well. Mm-hmm. I, when President Trump uh, began to run for president and was making a series of proposals, uh, I wrote a piece for Politico uh, with the title, Trump versus the Constitution, a guide. And the idea was to really go through piece by piece uh, what he was saying and proposing and explaining why it wasn't just a violation of the Constitution, the things that he was proposing. So things like the uh, commitment to shut down all Muslim immigration to the United States, the proposal to torture the families of suspected terrorists, not just the suspected terrorists themselves. And the idea was to go proposal by proposal and explain clause by clause why this was a violation of the Constitution. But the point was more than that. It was to suggest that this was somebody in his disposition, not just in his proposals, that was really hostile to the very idea of the office, the idea of the oath of office, uh, which after all is a commitment to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So I think a lot of people pointed out why he was immoral, uh, why he wasn't a great leader, but I, I guess at least at the time, this was, I think, one of the first pieces at least, to really dissect why it was a violation of the Constitution and I guess I think the other deeper point is that, you know, even though that that sort of language is there in the first second in office, preserve, protect mm-hmm. and defend the Constitution, that isn't really the way that we talk about modern presidents. And, and if you look at most presidential historians, if you look at what people say about presidencies and evaluate evaluating them, I don't think that the usual thing is to put the Constitution first. And yet that is supposed to be the definition of what it means to faithfully uh, respect the office. Do you think the average American is really au fait with the nuance, not just not the tenets, but with the nuance of the American Constitution? Or are they just um, American? Um, I'm going to phrase that a little bit or I'm going to expand on my point. Sure. So this is a conversation which I frequently have with Americans and I talk right. about how exceptional America is and right. no Brit no Brit is au fait with any bit of the British constitution because technically speaking we don't have one right you're, right. Just, you're just British uh, no German right. is au fait with the German constitution you're just German no Italian right. no 
you know, the amount of countries throughout the world that have a constitution which um, defines nationality, you can literally count on the fingers of one hand. Mm. You're you're just Brazilian. You don't have to Mm. believe in the tenets of of, of the constitution. And and, Mm. and for me, somebody like President Trump is just an exemplar of that. He's just, in a way, he's denying American exceptionalism. He's just saying America is just like anywhere else in the world. Uh, If you're Canadian, you're just Canadian. Um, to, to hell with the with the with the nuance of of, of the constitution and with the oath of office. Um, we're just Americans, and in a way, that's right. incredibly normal. Looked at the whole world <laughs> over. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, there are aspects of the exceptional parts of American constitutionalism that I uh, that that are problematic, and some that I want to defend. And to me, mm-hmm. the the main benefit that I think actually the rest of the world should learn from. Uh, is the idea that you're not American based on ethnicity, based on blood. And the idea in particular that he has recently proposed getting rid of, that if you're born in this country, you are an American, regardless of whether your parents were here legally, illegally, whether you're here multiple generations or just for a few minutes. Uh, That, to me, goes to the core of the American constitutional creed, which is about uh, equal protection of the law that we don't, and this is the break from monarchy, that we don't have a system of blood uh, status, that we reject the idea that who your parents are define your rights in any way. And those are things actually that to me are fundamental to the idea, not just of American constitutionalism, but, but democracy, and that really you are missing in parts of the world where you could be four generations within the borders of a country and yet not have citizenship. And so I think that his racism and his anti-constitutionalism sort of fit together in a way that I, I find it deeply problematic. I mean, the, the ideal of the office, the way, you know, George Washington understood it, for instance, or Madison, the early republic, isn't just that the Constitution's a set of laws, but it's that it's a set of values. And those are the mm-hmm. values that I very much want to defend, primarily the value of equal protection, Uh, enshrined in the 14th Amendment, but certainly present before that in the Declaration of Independence. The idea that you can criticize a president, that this isn't an office that sort of attaches to to a kind of immunity from criticism. Um, The idea of religious freedom, all of these things uh, that are in many ways exceptional, so I agree with that, are to me great, not just a a problem. And, and And they define the office as well. You know, the idea of a presidency really is Uh, If America is exceptional in its constitutional protections, well, then the office of presidency is unique, too. And the commitment, I think, to honor those specific things. So, uh, you know, sometimes American exceptionalism means, uh, you know, a sort of entitlement to grandiosity to try to lead lead the uh, Mm -hmm. world in military affairs. That's not the version of it that I want. But the idea that we protect all forms of free speech or that we don't have an established religion or that we're equal at birth, that I very much do want oh, to defend oh, and see oh, a president. Oh, okay, defend. Corey, let, let, let's try and unpick some of those points sure, that sure. Uh, you've uh, laid out there. First off, it's called The Oath and the Office, your book. So the, yep. the oath is obviously something which you see as incredibly central uh, yes. to the role of the president. It's, it's his promise, his pledge to the nation. Um, right. Why is Washington's second inaugural? Why is that so important? Obviously, it was you know one of the shortest. It was 135 words. Um, <laughs> why is this viewed in stark contrast to the one that came before? I mean, I think you find it in the first inaugural too, but the second really does it in the best possible way. 
it puts the focus on the idea that the person, the man, George Washington, is not the office, and that the office, in many ways, is above、uh, whoever occupies it at any particular time. The office is defined by the need to respect the rights enshrined in the Constitution. And what he says in that second inaugural is that if I, George Washington, fail to respect the oath that I just took, subject me to constitutional punishment. And to me, you know, it sort of enshrines the modesty of the office that this is a commitment to do a job, to to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution specifically. And if you fall short of that, or if you violate it in an, in an extreme way,、uh, then the result isn't. It's not like a monarch who just gets away with it and continues to act how they want. It's remove me, subject me to constitutional punishment, impeach me, remove me.、Uh, and I think too、uh, that what he's hinting at, although it's not clear exactly from the text, is that a president is not above the law and can be subject too to criminal indictment, despite the arguments that you sometimes hear. Claiming that the president has a special sort of immunity from that,、um, from、mm. that that that、uh, that obligation. You know, I always find it kind of fascinating being a Brit, looking at early American history and that period、mm. where you guys are defining your system of government and your ideals and your values. And it always strikes me that you guys overplay the position of King George the Third. <laughs> and, that he wasn't and so bad. No, it's not that he wasn't so bad. He、yeah. actually wasn't so powerful. He wasn't、I、really、see. directing、yeah. uh, British policy. It was.、Right. It was.、Uh, it was the government of the day. It was. It was North et al. It was all of those guys. Right.、Uh, and, and actually, if you were to if you were to look at、uh, continental Europe、um, in seventeen seventy six seventeen. Eighty-three, seventeen eighty-nine, and you'd have said which is the most open government. Good dog. What what dog did you have? So sorry. <laughs> He's a、uh, <laughs> have a boo. Bailey is、uh, making an appearance on Ten Presidents. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the first it's the first、uh, dog actually to, to bark bark and answer. So <laughs> taking great offence to where I, I was heading with with my in question. In particular, it was the defence of George the Third that he just <laughs> instinctively as a. Now,、uh, <laughs> full-fledged American <laughs> does not appreciate. But no, I, I take the point, which is there was a, a form of parliamentary constraint already happening in England, and I think one of the best new books making that argument is a book by、uh, Harvard professor Eric Nelson, who who makes exactly that point. That you know the idea of the constraints of the office、uh, were present already in England and in. British parliamentary,、mm. uh, you know, uh, you democracy. Know, it go, but but it go, I think exactly it goes、yeah. back to the Glorious Revolution a century、right. before. It goes back to the restoration of the monarchy、right. after Charles Charles the、uh, first after、right. you know after his execution. And and、right. kind of interesting for me is looking back at the,、uh, Jefferson and Franklin, who both、right. travelled to the UK. Travel to England、right. and took great solace in 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 terms of the the limits that were put on on the executive on the on the British executive when they were still British subjects, and, and looked back at the Glorious Revolution as this kind of font of、right. um, American liberty. 
Right. So I guess so, what so, I would so say. I just say that you yes. guys just oh, you overplay yeah. this all the time. <laughs> you know, a monarch with a nice shiny hat on their head is not such a bad thing. <laughs> well, I guess I would say this. On the one hand, it's certainly true that the idea of constitutional constraints on the president, on any state actor, has its origin in the idea of the balance of power between the parliament and and uh, King George III and, and other British monarchs. But I do think there is a break. Uh, and so I, I, I think part company with Nelson and others who, who really push that point in the following way. The American Revolution is about equality and the notion of the rejection of royalty and the notion of status distinctions at all based on birth mm. and even what you might think of as symbolic distinctions. And let's take, for instance, the benign establishment of the Church of England. Uh, that's rejected out of hand by Madison and then enshrined into law in our First Amendment, the, the ban on the establishment of religion. And I don't think that symbols are irrelevant to um, the American creed or doctrine that comes after it. So that idea that you're a citizen if you're born here, for instance, um, the rejection of both symbols, but also funding for church institutions. Uh, those are fundamental not only to the break with England, but to the ongoing uh, way that America defines, uh, you know, I guess, constitutional democracy but, and equality. And that, those aren't, I, to me, just Corey, symbols. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Corey, I, I'm always struck by yeah. the power of the symbol and yeah. by the intellectual force yeah. Of, of the argument of you know Madison right um, striking down his two bills right um, exactly you know so religion could not be established in the states and obviously exactly. that was a key Jeffersonian credo yes you know, that he said no we're not going to have an established religion over here correct um, my country and I don't I don't do a compare and contrast all the time uh, <laughs> but but it is the country that I know the most my country being the United Kingdom. Right. And we don't have an established, uh, a disestablished church. The Queen, our head of state, is the supreme head of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, I can't how, benign. Yeah. How, how many British prime ministers uh, run for office and right. have to say that they are a Christian? Absolute zero. And actually, right, right. The, one, the ones that do feel a little bit odd and i compare and contrast that with your present president who yes. so obviously has hardly <laughs> ever stepped a foot in church in his life but to run for office had to have this mock mini conversion and had to pretend you know he went to a couple of black churches and pretended to mouth along to to songs and what to hymns and, <laughs> and and very obviously this man doesn't have a christian bone in his body and i don't think that that's important for him to execute the office but it's important to you americans and and, and at the heart of your american experiment which is going yeah. pretty well for you so far. Don't get me wrong. We're having a little trouble these days. <laughs> well, it, it maybe it's just a stress test. And, yeah. and one of the many stress tests is, is your book, you know, to, <laughs> just to remind Americans of the reason why they separated all those years ago from, from the United Kingdom. Yeah. But you maybe in 2019 can conceive of somebody <laughs> running for office, the highest office in the land, and saying that they are not 
a regular church go they're not a practicing christian you can conceive of it now you couldn't before Yes. And I guess, you know, I don't want to state the book. The book certainly does speak about this break with monarchy that many, not all, but many of the framers thought uh, were essential. But I guess I think the, the comparison or the use of it isn't necessarily in saying that this regime is better than the British one, which, of course, we're drawing so much strength from and influence both in our common law and the structure of limited government. Uh, but mm. it's sort of a, a u- the use of it is internally in American politics because we, maybe more so than the history of the UK, have a deeply anti-democratic, anti-rule uh, of law uh, strand that we have to combat. And so alongside mm. the ban on uh, religious establishment is a strong belief ongoing, certainly now getting stronger, that this is a Christian nation. Or uh, along our, uh, our tradition of free speech, we have many leaders, the current one uh, among them, who want to ban criticism of the government. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, has proposed perhaps shutting down Saturday Night Live, the uh, show that criticizes him <laughs> and that he evidently watches. Uh, and so that's the use of it, I think. It's not necessarily in showing an improvement over uh, countries whose history and whose norms are sort of fit the constitutional tradition. It's in using it internally against opponents that have always really been here. I mean, in the 19th century, of course, we have the tradition of slavery that's eventually ended with the Equal Protection Clause and then a system of apartheid in a big part of the country. Now, what's the use? What's the way of sort of getting rid of this. We can't just rely on norms and history dating back to the 18th century. It's it's this legal tradition that kind of stands above. So I think, you know, I wouldn't want to compare the U.S. and say in any way that our system or our history is better than the U.K., um, you know, but I, I do think that its use is in, in fighting opponents of liberal democracy, of constitutional democracy at home. Mm. So... We have, um, to to draw a strand from what you just said, you have a president who seems to instinctively not understand that criticism of him, his policies, is a key part of democracy. It's a key part of um, the the functioning um, heft of... Of America, right. to a, a better way to say this, but yes. very much at the start of the Republic, you had Adams, right, and his um, Alien and Seditions Act. So, right. why don't you wind us all the way back to the late 18th century? Set the scene for us. I why th- did the second president uh, sign into into law this act, and and where has this act actually gone? And what does it tell us about America at that time? Yes. I mean, as I talk about in the book, there have been moments in American history. Donald Trump is by no means the first president to disregard the oath. There have been others who have been as as bad, certainly. And one example is the second president, John Adams, who rather than take the idea of the office seriously, including the notion of putting the law before oneself, and in particular, the right to criticize the president does the inverse. And he signs into law uh, these acts, including a sedition act, um, uh, the Alien Acts, which are discrimina- discrimination acts, basically, against uh, those um, not deemed sufficiently American, um, those coming from elsewhere. Uh, but I focus in on the Sedition Act in particular, which makes it a crime 
uh, to criticize the president of the United States. And just to show you what's going on with the structure of this, how partisan this legislation is, of course, the vice president at the time, uh, Thomas Jefferson, is a member of a different party than Adams. Adams is a federalist and Jefferson, a Democratic a dem- Democratic Republican. And um, uh, what the law says is you can criticize the president, but not the vice president. Uh, sorry, you can't criticize the president, but you can criticize the vice president of the United States. It's, in other words, a pure power grab by the Federalists. Uh, uh, and also it fits with Adam's understanding of himself as as monarch-like. I think he really doesn't buy uh, the idea of the break with monarchy at all. And he sees himself as entitled to a certain kind of dignity. That means that he can't be... Uh, subject to criticism. And not only that, but he also uh, orders uh, his attorney general to uh, go after political opponents. In the book, I talk about Matthew Leon, the congressman from uh, uh, from uh, Vermont, who is actually in prison for mocking Adams. Um, newspaper editors are put in jail. And so to me, that has a, um, you know, maybe it doesn't reflect the power of George III, but it certainly harkens back to a time of British monarchy where, where there was a crime of sedition that could result in, uh, you know, in, in pure punishment. And, and that is so roundly repudiated by the election of 1800 uh, by Jefferson and Madison and their resistance to the Alien Sedition Acts, their use of the states to proclaim the acts unconstitutional and ultimately of the American people to vote out of office uh, the, the second president. Uh, so it's a symbol of, yes, early failings, early violation of the oath of office, um, but also a reminder of, of uh, you know, uh, what the creed is supposed to be, that a president should be subject to criticism and should welcome it, not, not oppose it. So the presidency of John Adams is over in 1800. And that election is seen as uh, one of the dirtiest in, in, in American history, uh, with all manner of pop shots taken at candidates. Was it really clear back then? I know you kind of said in, in, in your answer that uh, the president was, Adams wanted the president to be above naked criticism. Um, but how easy was that going to be to um, to switch off the kind of the vitriol from somebody who's running as a candidate and saying that they were sleeping with uh, sleeping with their slaves and and they were you know uh, Scottish bastards and whatever like as Hamilton was was accused to be etc. Mm. And all of a sudden they're elevated in, into the presidency. Uh, how ideologically um, could that switch actually be made? I think, you know, um, presidential campaigns are often very vicious and involve all manner of speaking. But to me, the difference in what Adams did, as opposed to uh, what goes on during a campaign, is that he tried to uh, enshrine into law, not tried to, he did enshrine into law Mm -hmm. with the help of his party, uh, a rule which said you can't criticize the president. And if you do it, you go to jail. And that uh, is different than using speech in a vicious way, attacking opponents. Mm -hmm. And it really is antithetical to the consensus. And this is not a partisan view. There is no disagreement on the current Supreme Court. This would be a 9-0 case that the Alien and Mm. Sedition Acts are clearly unconstitutional. Our First Amendment protects all views and especially criticizing the president. So, yeah, he he was uh, a real failure. (laughs) Okay, but don't you feel that you've been a little bit hard on Adams because he needed to get this through Congress (laughs) and get it through the Senate 
yeah so he, he, yeah. He, he wasn't the only person in america that kind of had this view was he uh, no, I mean, and, you know, again, the American experiment is new. The Bill of Rights and its First Amendment is uh, only passed in the first uh, Congress. So it's it's very fresh. But mm-hmm. it was an early, you know, talk about a stress test. It was an early stress test, an early question of whether or not we were going to honor the basic requirements of that right. And he, with the aid of his own party uh, and on, in all branches. So it was uh, really a partisan piece of legislation passed without support from the other party, his allies in Congress, the Federalists, and let's not forget, too, the Supreme Court, uh, including Samuel Chase, who's supposed to be an independent justice, is the chief Mm -hmm. advocate or one of the chief advocates for this piece of legislation. Uh, So, you know, I know a lot of times historians try to be balanced, but I'm a constitutional lawyer, a person who is a defender of the document and who's evaluating presidents based on how well they uphold it. And so Adams, to me, uh, you know, I know he he has his defenders. He was a very learned person, one of the most prominent uh, lawyers to um, legal minds to hold the office, you know, up there with Wilson. Um, But like Wilson, you know, uh, uh, who also flouted uh, the office in similar way, uh, a a Democrat president uh, in the early 20th century, uh, Mm -hmm. Adams really uh, threatened the republic, I think. Uh, And and this election, as vicious as it was, the fact that the acts expire and really don't come back, uh, except for a brief period of time in the early 20th century, that 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 matters uh, to the development of, of American democracy, because to me, I should say this, too. And this is different from a European perspective in some ways. I don't think you can have true democracy and have limits on free speech, especially when it comes to criticism of leaders. Hmm. Uh, it's a good job you, you put in that little um, qualifier at the end because uh, you know there are there are many limits. Not many many yes, is wrong. Yes, there are course. there are yeah. limits on free speech in the UK. And I don't think any Brit would say that they feel any less free than an American. We don't look to America and say, oh, my God, these these guys are free. You know, there is uh, <laughs> there, there, there is a legal limit on race hate speech in the UK. Like there are certain things yes, you cannot say, yes. which which are things which you can say in, in, in the UK, but sorry, in the US. But then, of course, there is the whole analogy of, you know, shouting fire in, in, in a cinema type of thing. But anyway, right. you mentioned you mentioned it's criticism of leaders in particular, I guess, that I'm concerned about in the early republic. That's what Adams tried to do uh-huh. and didn't get away with. And I think if you if you don't have that protection, the ability to say to the president of the United States, you're doing a terrible job, or even to mock the president. That I, mm. I don't, I don't see how our. I think our system really can slip from a democratic form of government to to a different kind. And and I, I don't mm. think Adams himself is uh, has a constitutional view of American democracy. He's got something that verges more on let's call it the bad form of of monarchy. Yeah, again, it's just kind of fascinating for me to do this um i'm doing all the things which i keep on saying i'm not going to do i'm not going to do compare and contrast i'm not going to do compare and contrast and that's exactly what i'm what i'm reaching for james gilroy was a famous british caricaturist and kind of printmaker in in roughly this period no not in roughly exactly this period and he mercilessly mocked in cartoon and caricature not only british prime ministers but also the monarch yeah 
and I suppose at, at, at the heart of my fascination with your country and its constitution and its set of norms is the belief that that you think that everything that you guys do is absolutely exceptional and <laughs> you know we have we have this really famous cartoonist lampooning the king the head of state the head of the executive the prime ministers all the time and he wasn't thrown in prison but i want to move on from can i say just one last comment about i mean i guess i think uh, you know there are traditions that have free speech respected but Mm -hmm. without a legal guarantee of it, I think at least in this country, and I don't want to claim this is true of other countries with maybe a more of a stronger historic democratic tradition, I worry that there, there are continually forces that would uh, move in the direction of not respecting through norms uh, free speech. And so, you know, the legal protection, I guess, in American politics is a sort of bolstering. And, you know, this president, I'm, I'm sorry to bring it back to the president, is an example of that. I think uh, left to his own devices without a guarantee of a court, for instance, that would stop this immediately, and he's being told that, uh, we might be in a position where we are very far from, from tolerating criticism of our, our leaders. So, yeah, I think the legalistic thing here protects us in a way that mm-hmm. might not be necessary in other countries with, um, let's call it a, a stronger set of norms. So let's move on from the the late 18th century, the early 19th century to the early 20th century. And you you kind of pushed us in the direction of Wilson, um, a president who you said kind of brought to the office uh, not only the bully pulpit, but an obligation to uphold the oath. Mm. Um, Here's my thinking on this right and i haven't written a weighty tome which literally needed uh two ups fans to deliver it to my house so right you you you, you know you've written the big book and you've done all the research it's right. only sixty thousand words <laughs> <laughs> which one did they send you you might have gotten the adam's complete works or something <laughs> it, it had it had your name on it sir and uh, with an orange cover so i'm, I'm guessing it guessing it was your book but maybe the maybe the print the type was very big hence all the pages <laughs> It did have uh, some good stories in it too, right? I, no, it's not it's a, a, no, no, no. Listen, I, I I took it to bed with me most nights. Had a very good time with it. Had a very good read with it. So, so I thank you for that. Um, okay, thank you. Before we come on to um, the obligation to uphold the oath. Yes. Uh, so you say that uh, Wilson expands the presidency and he kind of gives a constitutional argument for the notion that the president is the first amongst, amongst equals. Right. If you take um, kind of the, the long, for, the, the, the traditional view of the American presidency, the imperial presidency kind of starts with Theodore Roosevelt, doesn't it? That he seems to galvanize um, a, a force of personality. Yes, and other kind of constitutional uh, norms to 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 remodel the American presidency, and is really what we're talking about there. Which you kind of say that uh, Wilson 
is a really good example of this. You know, it's the first among, first among equals. Is this really because of new technology? Because it's not by accident, is it, that by the time we get to Theodore Roosevelt, we can hear the voices of presidents. They, they were on acetate. They were on vinyl. It was the start of radio. Okay, a little bit after uh, Wilson, maybe. Um, this is a time of near universal uh, uh, literacy so that people could read newspapers. Mm. Um, so is, is this uh, consolidation of presidential power really just a natural concurrence to do with modern technology, modern communication technologies, or is this some kind of redefining, slight withering of of uh, the Constitution and the office of the presidency? Yeah, I think it's a convergence of forces. I certainly wouldn't discount everything that you said. I think that's an important part of it. And especially since the way that the power is consolidated by uh, Theodore Roosevelt and, and sort of solidified by Wilson is uh, speech. Uh, you know, the, the, there's sort of a tradition um, about uh, how presidents are going to conduct themselves. And the notion in particular, you see this in those Washington speeches uh, that I'm talking about. He's really addressing himself uh, to Congress and talking about what he owes Congress and that bit about mm-hmm. constitutional punishment is him saying, you know, to, to the House, really, if I violate the oath, you know, you have a mechanism to do something about it, which is subject me to constitutional punishment, that second inaugural. And I think the difference that corresponds to the technological uh, creation that you're talking about is no longer am I going to talk to the other branches. I'm going to talk to the American people and I'm going to galvanize them to back my pieces of legislation, whether it's in the Roosevelt case about, um, you know, safety of things like food and um, um, uh, or later uh, with uh, Wilson, things like the um, argument, the unsuccessful argument for the League of Nations. But it's, it's that I think that is a sort of difference in constitutional approach between I'm going to work with Congress to pass bills. I'm going to you know, either be equal or maybe even slightly subservient to the uh, will of Congress, which is the law, lawmaking body, to know I'm really going to step out in front and use this technology to uh, create an independent kind of power. And I think what Wilson, what makes Wilson different um, from Roosevelt is that he is, you know, teaching constitutional law at Princeton. He is certainly one of the preeminent constitutional law scholars in the country. So he should have and known he better. He, yeah, he should have. He did know better, I think. <laughs> and um, and he's also, you know, I guess I'm also not naive in the sense that I don't. I admire Washington, of course, but I don't think we're going to go back to a uh, president not speaking to the nation or uh, subsuming his or herself. Congress, but it's the convergence of that beginning of the imperial presidency with the racism of Wilson and really the outright uh, arrogance of it's not just racism, it's celebrating the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, there are historians, I've seen a lot of popular historians, for instance, trying to underplay the fact that he shows Birth of a Nation in the White House. And they say, you know, he didn't really know what was in it. He shows it and, and it's not a big deal. It's not really him defending racism at, in the office. And I, I just think that's false. As I say in the book, 
the film quotes him twice at length from his own work celebrating the, the Klan and its racism. And then that corresponds to, to actions that he takes within uh, the executive power to resegregate, for instance, the federal workforce. So it, it isn't a sort of by-the-way thing. And it isn't that he's unaware of Justice Harlan's de- dissent, for instance, and Plessy versus Ferguson saying that we truly have a colorblind constitution. It's that he's actively choosing to support the extreme right, the view of the Ku Klux Klan. And he's really converging uh, the danger of the newfound powers of the president uh, with forces that are really against the equal protection uh, guarantee that all Americans are supposed to have regardless of race. And and that's why he really is, to me, uh, a symbol of a, a dangerous um, and, and uh, in many ways failed president. So we've just had the State of the Union address where we have this incredibly, at least by American standards anyway, incredibly diverse intake of new congressmen and women. And all of the Democratic women were wearing white to, mm. to in recognition of 100 years of women's suffrage. That was implemented by Wilson, wasn't it? You know, can we, should we damn this man who was, I think we can say, by the standards of uh, 2019, a racist, somebody Mm. who systematically tried to block and to get rid of any black federal employees. But can we completely uh, throw away the fact that under his administration, women were given the vote? He Mm. was somebody who tried... Uh, to uh, prevent World War Two by yes. having uh, yeah. the League of Nations, um, you know, a, a very far-sighted president in many ways. Yes, yeah, and I think you know we've got to tolerate the ambiguity. Certainly, I, I agree with all of those things. I mean, w- women's suffrage—he gets some credit, but of course, there's a movement behind it that he's not getting in the way of. So I, I don't know how much credit he gets for that. That counterbalances. Um, but, you know, I guess I would add to the, the criticism of him, to the concern about um, uh, that we're talking about race. And, you know, exactly as you put it, he, he is by far and away a racist for his time. Celebrating the Klan is not the norm of American politics. Uh, it's it's the, still, even at that period of time, the um, uh, 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 a version of right wing racialism, racism that, um, you know, is rejected by much of the country. But the other thing is the Adams-like uh, quality of him. You know, this is also a time of the Red Scare and, uh, um, you know, permissive Supreme Court. Uh, and, you know, he supports the prosecution of people running for office who he deems too left. And uh, so that's another uh, big minus uh, in my book. <laughs> but yes, I take your point too that, you know, he, he sort of creates in many ways the modern presidency and, and there are things that we can praise him for as well. What, I guess one thing I will point out that I think is uh-huh. different from my approach than many historians is to me in evaluating a president, the thing that comes first is the minimum requirement is did they respect the oath? And so that's why he fails in a way that he might not if you have other criteria, for instance, you know, how powerful was mm-hmm. Corey, I think we need to take five 
away from all this presidential chat because normally on f- Friday 15 or Friday, as I now call it, because these interviews are much more longer than 15 minutes, I try and gleam a little bit about the person I'm speaking to by their music choices. Um, so this is your time to shine, sir. Um, <laughs> tell us the piece of music that you've nominated for the show this week. Uh, I chose uh, The Clash, uh, Know Your Rights. As always, here is an American constitutional scholar <laughs> and you've reached for a British example, haven't you? You know, why have we gone for The I, Clash? I, I just partly to uh, given our conversation and the challenge that we owe it all to England. <laughs> That was tempting, <laughs> but also because the content of the song, to me, even though it, I mean, it sort of fits perfectly, it certainly comes from England, but it, it perfectly captures, I think, the uh, American approach to the presidency, which is that, yes, a president is a powerful figure, the kind of symbol and leader of American government in many ways, but also limited in his or her power and has to respect the idea that uh, the sovereignty of the people is really where that power is grounded. And that's what the Clash are saying, you know, and in the end, it's up to the people to claim their rights, to know them, uh, to articulate them. And uh, what better uh, way of of merging the conversation that we had about uh, the origin of these ideas in British parliamentary democracy and uh, uh, also the, 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 both the debt that we owe to England, but the way in which maybe we have, oh, now I'm going to really push it, uh, more perfectly perfected <laughs> some of these ideas. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. hey. <laughs> this is a public service announcement with guitar.
But doesn't this wonderful piece of music just illustrate how much you lost by separating from the British crown? Good <laughs> old fashioned English kind of punk scar. You know, you don't get things more rough and ready, but also meaningful than that, do you? I mean, I just, you know, I, I highly respect this band. It has a sort of bluntness to it. It's got a message. It's amazing to listen to. And yeah, it's a kind of rawness. It also is the least pretentious band of all times. And, you know, part of what I've been trying to push is the idea that the American Revolution was a sort of rebellion from aristocracy, that the egalitarian ideas of the American Revolution are just anything but pretentious. And what better illustration of that than this this sort of really earthy, you know, real, authentic uh, sound from The Clash. But wasn't Joe Strummer a little bit of an aristocrat amongst punks? You know, he, he was kind of a punk royalty almost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I see, yeah. I mean, but it, I don't know. If there's a such thing as punk royalty, I think it's pretty different from the idea of the pretension of uh, the true aristocracy. I, 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 don't think, I don't think of the message of The Clash in any way being about some being better than others due to birth. I mean, maybe a recognition of within a system of equality that some of us are better lyricists than others. <laughs> I think that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it, the point of the lyrics is to bring out the, why, the message of quality, of the power of people to limit government and to demand what they're owed. Just before we leave The Clash... You know, with your present president in mind, surely the song you should have picked is Should I Stay or Should I Go? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Definitely. (laughs) And you know, my view, the answer to that song is, yes, you should go, Mr. President. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Okay. One of the powers of the presidency is the idea that if there is an emergency, he has 
extrajudicial powers. Well, that's not in our constitution, in my understanding, anyway. There's a debate about it, I guess I would say. Okay, well, 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 let's, first off, (laughs) let's go to the example that you use. Yeah. Which is the one which is always cited, which is Youngstown, right. yes, and, exactly. uh, against uh, Truman, and then right. um, expand on the argument because obviously this is extremely right. prescient right now. And even yes. though, yes. as as we stand, as we sit here in early February, it looks like uh, President Trump will not call a national emergency. There is the question mm. of is this constitutional? Etc. So let's deal with the example in 1952, and then then let's talk about the academic argument as to whether the president can or should actually enforce emergency powers. Yes, exactly. Great. I would say that certainly there are people who believe um, that the Constitution enables the president in an emergency to act during wartime, for instance, in a way that otherwise, in normal periods of time, uh, a president couldn't act. Uh, To me, the best refutation of the idea that the president has inherent emergency powers is found in the Youngstown case in the um, main opinion, but also in the concurrence by Justice Jackson, who had been uh, the uh, American prosecutor uh, in the Nuremberg trials. And what Jackson says in that opinion is that unlike the Weimar Constitution, for instance, that the American Constitution has no, and certainly his right textually, no, no textually granted emergency powers. And he says, really, it doesn't have inherent emergency powers at all. And in wartime or in peacetime, uh, the president's power is at its lowest point when Congress says that um, a president can't act. So in that case, let's just explain what happened to the listeners, for those who don't know it. President Truman decides during the Korean War that steel production is uh, not as strong as it needs to be. And when there is a strike in these uh, steel mills throughout the country, he says, I need to use my emergency powers through executive order to take over these mills to stop the strike and to get steel production going. And in this Supreme Court opinion, the question is, does the president have these wartime uh, emergency powers? And the answer is no, because Congress considered granting him these powers and then explicitly um, uh, and implicitly uh, decided to deny them. And the, the, the main opinion, the opinion by Jackson uh, says, you know, sorry, Mr. Truman, uh, you, you know, this is far from Hitler or the takeover of um, a country by a fascist regime. I mean, Jackson had worked for uh, Truman and was in many ways a fan, uh, but also wanted to lay down this idea that a president is constrained by the law even in a um, uh, plausibly, in that case, in an emergency. I mean, it wasn't that he was making this up about steel production. So when we go to the present time, to me, you know, certainly a constitutional argument for emergency powers is uh, dubious. And I think, too, the opinion still is the law of the land. And we have to look to whether or not Congress has um, allowed for the building of the wall or not, or prohibited it. And my, you know, there's an argument that there are statutes passed since Youngstown that do grant this p- president power to do that, not not based in the Constitution, but based in statutory law. Um, and an Emergency Powers Act, for instance, passed in the 1970s. But the better of the argument to me is still that Youngstown argument. The Congress considered granting this ability to build the wall and, and decided not to. Mm. 
So, one of the things which um, which I kind of found really, really interesting in your, in your book and was going to crystallise in, into one of your points, and we kind of mentioned this before, at least I did anyway, was uh, kind of the hiring and firing. Mm. And it's something which uh, you say that Wilson and FDR did so at will. Um, and specifically to do with Wilson, Wilson's reputation has really taken a tumble. Um, mm. In the time that I went to school, we learned about the First World War. He was always seen as not quite the great liberator because you, you, you Americans just swanned in at the last minute and mm. uh, just had a cu- just had a couple of battles. But but you were seen as a breath of fresh air in those peace negotiations. And and really that was Wilson, wasn't it? It was it, this was a new way of looking at the world. We had this massive cataclysm. Yes, uh, which which had bestrode uh, the planet or in Europe anyway, and here is somebody with bold new ideas, and people kind of rallied to that, and that was definitely the uh, what I read in those history books in the 1980s when I was at uh, secondary school or high mm. school, as you'd call it in America, and and his mm. reputation has massively taken a tumble since, um, yes. not only because of. Um, his uh, kind of quite naked kind of racist attitudes. But um, explain to us um, how the oath and the, you know, the pledge to the nation protects civil servants mm. and and then um, independent prosecutors, etc. Again, um, as a Brit, I say, well... Yeah. We, we kind of have this and uh, Theresa May doesn't get, put a hand on a Bible and, and, and have this oath <laughs> right. and we have a functioning civil service which is independent from the executive and I'm guessing the French, the Spanish, the Germans, the Italians uh, kind of say the same and I, admit, I, I appreciate that those countries have a very different 20th century history when it comes to um, civil governance mm. but um, you know they've arrived at a place which I, I don't think is going to be that that too different from from the United States. So mm. okay, so tell me um, why Wilson and FDR uh, w- were bad, what they <laughs> did, and, and how because of the the oath in, in office, how that has uh, prevented the executive can't blanch just putting its friends in in crony positions. First, I should say I wanted to say something about Wilson, and I had a similar sort of trajectory with him where um, I was a graduate student at Princeton where he was revered and taught as the internationalist. Many things are named after him. I was actually very proud to be married in the former house that he lived in. And so I've learned all this since. (laughs) So I also Uh am with you in having a big tumble uh, from uh, being a big fan to being a a skeptic. Um, The other place where he... um, uh, I don't know if this I would con- condemn him in the way that I would for the speech and and uh, uh, and the racism, the, the failure to respect free speech and his racism. Uh, it's a more nuanced area, but it, it's an important one, and it's one in which I think um, the Constitution, in many ways, and its setup might make um, us more vulnerable to um, the United States, more vulnerable. To manipulation by a bad president than many European countries where there is a, a kind of tradition of protecting the civil service. And the argument that Wilson makes, basically there's a postmaster general 
um, uh, that he wants to fire. And he's supposed to get consent, according to the law at the time uh, of the Senate, if he wants to be able to, uh, to fire the civil servant, um, uh, uh, you know, a way of protecting civil servants. And, you know, there's a long history of, of laws protecting civil servants. But he says, I'm the president of the United States. It's part of this move to the imperial presidency. And I have the right as president to fire my employees. And these members of the executive branch, including the postmaster general, are my uh, employees. And the Supreme Court agrees with them. The sort of master constitutional argument, you know, he directs. Um, uh, he, he, he carries out this firing, uh, and uh, the Supreme Court agrees with them. Now, the danger of that so precedent he wasn't wrong. Then, then was he, Corey? I don't think that's the danger that that one move. But now here, moving up to FDR oh, okay. and uh, the modern point, um, the extreme version of the Wilsonian argument. And I, I don't think that necessarily he had this in mind. But this is where it could be taken. Would say that all civil servants are subject to the firing, uh, to firing by the president of the United States uh, at will and for any reason. And you see where this starts to be a danger when the civil servants are the ones who are in charge of investigating wrongdoing uh, within the executive branch. And so, after Watergate, you know, the decision is made. Um, to create an office where if the president or people close to the president are accused of criminal acts, uh, if they're, um, if they're uh, suspected of criminal acts, that they are immune from firing by a president who wants to just protect him or herself. And the thought was, you know, Nixon was in this position uh, where Nixon had, had you know, fired, uh, essentially, uh, an attorney general, uh, his cabinet official, who refused to fire um, uh, uh, the person who was looking into his possible crimes. So Elliot Richardson, the attorney general, refuses to fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor at the time. So Nixon just fires Richardson and then uh, fires uh, the deputy who takes over until uh, 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 Mr. Bork, the later Judge Bork, uh, takes that office and agrees to uh, fire Cox. Now, after that, the thought was, you know, maybe this has gotten out of hand. The Wilsonian idea that the president can fire whoever he or she wants for any reason, even if that person is investigating the president's own wrongdoing. And so Congress passes this kind of anti-Wilsonian law uh, that relies actually on a case from the time of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, where the court did say actually Congress can create protections for civil servants that even a president can't un- undo, and especially in positions where it's essential that there be a kind of independence. And the Supreme Court upholds this law, the independent prosecutor law. Now it's since expired, and we're back to the system of um, that Nixon was in. And, and frankly, there is no protection uh, for this investigation under our Constitution. My belief is that if the president wants to fire um, his attorney general who refused to fire uh, Mr. Mueller, uh, that, that constitutionally that actually probably is prohibited. I mean, probably allowed. Um, uh, uh, and, um, you know, we're in a sort of position where the imperial presidency uh, has no uh, direct legal oversight. And, and that does trace a sort of origin uh, to this more, uh, you know, more benign uh, argument about this kind of inconsequential postmaster general. Surely the safeguard 
against a president doing that actually is politics, isn't it? Right here and now, it would be catastrophically a move of gross incompetence for this president, and I use him just purely as an example, mm. to get rid of Robert Mueller. So I suppose my question is, do we really need a law, an act, when you have political common sense mm. as, um, as, as, a, right. as a backstop? Right. And, um, you know, that's what the defenders of the current system say. And they say Congress, after all, can exercise its oversight powers as well. Uh, but my worry is that, you know, politics depends on the moment. And uh, I, I don't know where we are, frankly, politically at this moment. Uh, could the president of the United States with a new attorney general uh, confirmed by the Senate, I mean, when that happens, uh, who's respected because of his role in the Bush administration, replay the Saturday night massacre in a way that actually has a completely different result, namely that the current president gets away with the firing and faces no consequences. Uh, I, I'm just not sure. I mean, what, what really ultimately stopped Nixon was the threat of impeachment and uh, a court that was willing to intervene to demand that the subsequent um, special counsel be allowed to subpoena the Watergate tapes. Th those all to me don't seem like inevitable historical outcomes. And so I'm just not confident that the previous um, example is the one that would guide us now. And frankly, this president uh, and his allies have said the problem with Nixon was that he was too weak. He didn't fight hard enough. He did step down. And, uh, you know, that lesson, I'm not, I'm not sure that they're wrong. Um, so we, we, we start we're starting to get to some of the main kind of tenants uh, of your book. Um, but I suppose the biggie is uh, impeachment and yes. the role that that plays um, in censoring a president. And I, and I think there's lots of uh, misunderstanding about actually what impeachment is. Uh, people think that uh, if a president gets impeached and if he's found guilty, he automatically gets booted out of office, and that's not a call, not at all the case. Correct. Uh, but give it, give us um, a quick history on impeachment, but then specifically with the views on impeachment, uh, specifically somebody like Frederick Douglass, who uh, was kind of horrified at. Uh, president andrew johnson just after the civil war and the way that he was treating kind of a, a recalcitrant uh, south so uh, what is impeachment a history of impeachment let, let, let's just do that first sure, let's just sure. Do, do, do those elements first and let's just see where the conversation then takes us from there sure the um the constitution sets up a specific uh system of what washington called constitutional punishment um, uh, that is really political. This isn't a judicial process and it's not a judicial standard, although it's often misunderstood as one. Um, if a majority uh, of the House of uh, Representatives and um, decides to vote uh, to impeach or it, it's the equivalent of indict president on specific grounds, that begins uh, and goes to the Senate for a uh, what resembles a trial, but again, it isn't a legal process. Um, and the, the, if the Senate decides and considering the charges or the, the impeachment brought by the House, uh, uh, the two thirds of senators decide that they are they are uh, the charges are warranted. 
uh, a two-thirds vote uh, results in the removal uh, of a president from office and the end, really, of that presidency. And the Constitution explains what the standard is supposed to be. Uh, both the House and the Senate are supposed to ask the question of whether or not the sitting president of the United States has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, that sounds like a legal standard, so why did I say it's not a legal process? Uh, there is no uh, thing in uh, the criminal law that's no category of the criminal law that's uh, called high crime. Uh, it's meant to convey, I think, a different idea, that phrase, uh, which is really a violation of the terms of office, the violation of the oath to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution. But the history of impeachment is sort of a back and forth between what I've just said and the more legalistic way of seeing it. So uh, President Johnson, and this follows on our discussion about hiring and firing, uh, disregarded a requirement at the time uh, that said that he had to, um, that he couldn't on his own uh, just fire his Secretary of War. Uh, he wants to fire the Secretary of War, a holdover from the Lincoln administration, uh, and, and just does it without consulting uh, the Senate. Now, uh, impeachment charges are brought against him, uh, f- largely focusing on that act and why it's illegal and he's disregarded the, the letter of the law by uh, engaging in this firing. But Frederick Douglass at the time, the orator, the, the uh, abolitionist, the uh, civil rights advocate, Um, uh, makes what I think is an important correction to the way that the Senate and the House are conducting this investigation. Uh, And the uh, correction is this. Uh, He says, let's call Johnson out uh, for an impeachable offense uh, that is actually common sense. Namely, he's an opponent of the end of slavery. He's failing to enforce the 13th Amendment. He's traveling around the country making vile, racist speeches. And uh, that's the reason why he should be impeached and removed from office. Uh, nothing to do, really, uh, with this Secretary of War firing. Um, uh, and what I say in the book, you know, first of all, given what we just were saying about Wilson, it might be in retrospect that the, the, the firing by a cabinet official, uh, by the president, is constitutional under the Myers precedent. Um, that ha- case, of course, hadn't been decided at the time, but he might have been within his rights to do it. I think he probably was. So I'm actually taken with the um, Frederick Douglass argument that it, this isn't a legal process. Let's not fr- pretend it is. Let's call it what it is and say that this president, speaking at least uh, in his time, uh, President Johnson, has uh, disregarded the oath. And um, uh, and it's the racism and the failure to end slavery, to uh, faithfully execute the laws, of, of, like Washington says, a failure of the oath that warrants uh, his impeachment. Is it a failure of the oath or is it the failure to uphold uh, the mores of, of the time? Because, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that this is a, this is a movable standard, mm, really. And there, and there is something to be said for objectively saying um, you cannot do this, you cannot do that, and mm. that's just written in some kind of tablet of stone, and then if that's transgressed, but to say that somebody has exhibited some behaviour of which people at the time do not like, well, we all know that you know habits and uh, you know mores change over time. Um, I think he's saying something in between. I don't think it's simply that he's an immoral president. And so, you know, the president uh, might 
be drinking a lot, for instance, and some mm-hmm. people might find that immoral. That's not oh, an impeachable offense. Oh, you're talking offense. about Ulysses Grant now, <laughs> right? <laughs> many presidents. Um, <laughs> so, so I don't think that's what he. I know that's not what he's saying, and he's also not saying let's look at the letter of the law. He did something illegal here. I think what he's saying, the in between position, is. Um, you know, there are very specific things under the oath of office that the president is supposed to do, and one of them is to faithfully execute the law. And it isn't just that it's immoral to bring back slavery. It's that the 13th Amendment, which after all, they had just fought a war to <laughs> enact, basically, and had, mm. had gone through the process of amendment, very difficult process. Lincoln doesn't just rely on um, the Emancipation Proclamation or an executive order. He goes and seeks the constitutional process. And then for this president to come in and really just sort of not only fail to, you know, stop uh, ongoing slavery, but to sort of speak in this deeply racist way against the ideas of anti-subordination that had just been enshrined into law. That that's a constitutional violation. Now, can he go to jail for failing to execute the law? No, it's not a criminal offense, uh, but it's not just a moral one either. It's it's that there is mm. a failure in the duties of office. That that to me is Douglas's point, and you know, as you know, I agree with it, and and that's why I put the oath uh, central and and want to put it back into the um, back into the uh, way that we evaluate uh, historical uh, presidents. Why, why do you think we get so excited about impeachment, the threat of impeachment, possible impeachment, the whiff of impeachment? Because ultimately, all it is is a slap on the wrist at best. Well, it's the end of a presidency. I think um, in a way it's more parliamentary. I'd like to I guess what I'm recommending is it's not quite a no confidence vote, but uh, as you're. Um, no confidence votes were were being considered uh, in regard to uh, Theresa May's um, uh, uh, continuing as prime minister. I thought, you know, these are very different processes in some ways, but in some ways, what Douglas is saying, let's not make it as big a deal as it is. Let's not pretend it's a criminal offense. Let's say mm. it's a fa- failure of this leader to do the job. Um, and um, I think maybe because I don't know why it's seen as as a bigger deal than that, but it's probably the term high crime suggests that there's a condemnation of this president, not just an end of their presidency. But I think what Douglas is really saying is, look, you know, this is a job that has to be done. And if you really fail in it in the way that this Johnson has, uh, we need to end this presidency. Mm. Corey, it's been fascinating to speak to you and to go through some of the important parts of how the office has evolved the book is called The Oath and the Office. How long did it take you to write it? I'd say a year and a half, uh, maybe two years. I start, I have to date it, but um, I wrote a piece during the campaign uh, when Donald Trump was running, basically, called Trump versus the Constitution, outlining why mm-hmm. at least candidate Trump's proposals uh, in many ways violated the Constitution. And my thought was, you know, this can't just be about one president. We have to reflect on the nature of the office and think more generally, historically, and return to that Washingtonian idea that the primary thing that matters for a president is whether or not they're willing to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And so, uh, yeah, that that prompted this uh, much more historical uh, inquiry. Here's a question which I think is probably somewhat childlike on, on my part, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It might not make the edit if you <laughs> just say that's a totally ridiculous question. That's usually and, the and, best and, one. And, so. and, and you shame me. 
if I'm going to promise to uphold the constitution, how can I sign into law any amendment to it? It's a very good question, actually, and that the answer is that the amendment process is part of the content of the constitution, and what it says is. It would, I think it would be a violation of a, a president to say, you know what, as Johnson did, I don't like this 13th Amendment thing. I want to go back to the pre-Civil War Constitution. That you can't do. Uh, but the Constitution is very clear that if there's something in it uh, that you want to change, that, you know, that's open t- to do. And the history of American democracy is often the history of uh, using that amendment process uh, to, to uh, yeah, to change the law. So, um Income tax uh, is one example, or the expansion of the suffrage. Uh, and the framers believed they weren't perfect; they they were not infallible, and they trusted uh, future supermajorities, at least, uh, to amend even the most basic parts of our constitution. Now, there are some parts that there is one part in particular uh, that you can't amend, and uh, that's the uh, requirement that the Senate be made up of two two members from each state. So there, there's one limit. But aside from that, uh, the framers trusted us to uh, to use that process. So I think a, a president who pushes for an amendment, uh, as we, we talked about, for instance, uh, Wilson and the suffrage, uh, mm-hmm. that, that that is certainly within the bounds of the office. So I've been speaking to Corey Brett Schneider, who's written the book, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Corey, thank you for coming on and explaining how the office has evolved and how the oath has been a central part in keeping them to account to the American people. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and uh, what great questions. And uh, I love delving deeply into that history.